coming out. Good afternoon to all of you and good morning to the few of you. Well, we come to Zechariah 5 and 6 today. And as Peter said of Paul, Zechariah wrote many things hard to be understood. Uh, this is an area of Zechariah that has been very enigmatic uh, because the commentaries add absolutely no help to it. Uh, very confusing to try to read the different ideas they have about these chapters. But since they're right here in the past, uh, we have to address them. And I feel like Peter trying to explain Paul, uh, only probably worse because it's just me trying to explain Zechariah. Uh, but in any case, I think we can make a certain amount of sense of it. And to do so, I want to go back and review what we've already seen in the book of Zechariah because it's very important to understand what leads up to these chapters in order to understand what they're talking about. So let's go back to Zechariah 1 and very quickly here, chapter, I mean, verses 1 through 7, essentially say, listen, do not be as your fathers in the past who rejected what the prophets had to say. Uh, the prophecies took hold of them and they were punished, taken captive, and destroyed by what had been told them that they had rejected. So Zechariah begins with a warning that the things that are written here we had better pay close heed to. And in that sense, we'd better come to understand what he's talking about here. And beginning with uh, verse 8 then, after a time lapse of, what was it, two or three months or four maybe, I forget exactly, but he begins an assessment of the church and where the world sits today as we read this, um, the world basically being at rest, but the horses in these verses represent war and trouble, the church being scattered, uh, while the world is still basically at rest, I mean, there's the problems in the world are continuing to increase, but there's no world war going on, and the plagues and the various end-time prophecies haven't fully hit the world yet. So it is essentially at rest, and yet the church has these horses uh, and difficulty. And we also find a 70-year period here ending, and it's likened to the captivity in Babylon. We went through this and showed that we've had essentially 70 years here since the church began in the midst of Babylon, at least this end-time uh, age under Herbert Armstrong, and we're at almost the end of 70 years since the church was organized uh, in this age. So perhaps we're at the time almost ready to be released from Babylon and to go to safety as we will see a little later on in this summary. He said he was a little displeased with Herbert Armstrong. I think that's what the meaning is. But he became very sore displeased when the heathen came in. And we've seen scattering ever since. It talks about the four praying horns who destroy the church toward the end of chapter 1. It talks about four carpenters who will rebuild in the very last part of chapter 1. And then in chapter 2, verse 1, he introduces someone with a plumb line, which we established is at least one of the two witnesses here, both are involved, to measure the church. Uh, Revelation 11, 1 and 2 show that they're to measure the altar and that is the ministry and the people that are there and to leave the Gentiles out so this is a church matter we're talking about here very important to establish that the context here is the church 
is measuring how big it is and how it will be rebuilt here in the first few verses of uh, chapter 2. Then in chapter 6, he begins to talk about fleeing and going. He says, flee to Zion or deliver yourself, O Zion, depending on which translation you use, that dwells with the daughter of Babylon. So the church is still here with Babylon, in Babylon, has been captivated by Babylon, and Isaiah 52 talks about shaking the yoke of Babylon off our neck and not being walked on anymore. Micah 5 talks about rising and threshing, as does uh, Isaiah 41, that the church is not to sit still, uh, it is to flee, but apparently beforehand, or at the time of, it begins to rise and thresh uh, the Assyrian who will cower before the church, and we're going to see that before uh, Zerubbabel, the mountains and hills are made flat, just as in Egypt, what Moses and Aaron did there, or what the angels did at their behest and in God's direction, was to make Egypt quail in fear before the God of all the earth universe, and before Moses and Aaron, for that matter, and before Israel. So the same type of scenario is going to happen again. Verse 13 of chapter 2, Be silent of all flesh before the Lord. He is raised up out of his holy habitation. He's ready to go to work, in other words. And Psalm 119, 126 is echoed here where it says, It is time for you to work, O Lord, for they have voided or made void your law. And we'll see that it is that law, very shortly, that will be the line held up against the church and the world. The, the truths of God. Uh, chapter 3, 1 through verses, through chapter 4 and verse 14 introduces the leaders uh, and their main initial focus as being the church. All seven churches they feed oil to. Uh, you combine chapter 4, verse 14, where it calls them the two anointed ones, with Revelation 11, 4, where it says these are the sons of oil or the anointed ones. So this is talking about the two witnesses at the end of the age. So the context is definitely of the church and of the leaders of the remnant of the church, which will come back together as explained in Haggai all the way through. So we see the introduction of the leaders here. Now, with that background and the introduction of the two witnesses in verse 14 of chapter 4 of Zechariah, we now get to chapter 5. It's very important to lay the context first. I'll put this in an agricultural term I heard one time from a rancher who wanted to get rid of some prairie uh, ground squirrels, prairie dogs. He said the first thing you have to do is determine which way the hole slopes. That is, there's a hole in the top of the ground, but if you're going to dig the squirrels out, you have to determine which side of the hole to dig on because it could go this way or that way or the other way, and you might be digging in vain if the hole slopes that direction. In other words, context is very important. To know what is going on here, to understand that which is symbolic and thereby enigmatical in its, uh, in its presentation from God here. Perhaps it is done that the world might be totally confused uh, and its commentaries not have any idea what's going on because they don't even recognize where true Israel is and especially do they not recognize where spiritual Israel is. But we do. So now, let's get into chapter 5, where he says, Then I turned. 
In other words, this isn't something completely divorced from and separate from that which has gone before. He is continuing what he's been talking about. You see, that's the context. That's the direction the whole slopes here. Then I turned and lifted up my eyes and looked, and behold, a flying roll. Now, for all intents and purposes, from what you can gather from the uh, commentaries, it might as well be a Tootsie roll, or perhaps a cinnamon roll, uh, because they have no clue. But I think we'll see very quickly here what it is. Uh, the roll is flying. That means that it's not sitting passively on the ground. It is flying, which means what? Quickness. Judgment is coming quickly because this is a flying roll. A roll is a scroll. A scroll has words written on it. This scroll is written on both sides, as we shall see. So it's something that is coming quickly, and it has words written on it that have meaning to the church and ultimately to the world, to spiritual Israel and then ultimately to physical Israel. In other words, once the witnesses are introduced, the leadership of the church, then very quickly judgment is going to come. And he said to me, what do you see? And I answered, I see a flying roll. The length thereof is 20 cubits, and the breadth thereof 10 cubits. Those are the dimensions of the tabernacle in the wilderness. They contained the Ten Commandments. And we're going to see that that is the correct understanding of this. The law of God is what is important. He says, This is the curse that goes forth over the face of the whole earth. For every one that steals shall be cut off as on this side according to it, and every one that swears shall be cut off as on that side according to it. This is reminiscent of Leviticus 26, Deuteronomy 28, where God laid the law of God before uh, Israel and said, If you will obey it, you will be blessed. If you disobey it, you will be cursed. That is instruction both to physical Israel and to spiritual Israel, the church. Not one jot nor one tittle of the law of God is done away. And the voiding of God's law is why it is time for Christ to begin to go to work and to resolve this problem. So, the, cost, the curse, causeless, does not come. And God lays out very clearly there in Leviticus and Deuteronomy that... He is sending a curse as a result of the disobedience we have shown. Now, let's understand in context again. I, I will flip quickly back to Revelation 11 here, where he says, There was given me a reed like a rod, and the angel stood saying, Rise and measure the temple of God. So this is the church and the altar, the ministry, and then the worship therein, the laity. But the court which is without the temple, leave out and measure it not, for it is given to the Gentiles, and the holy city shall I tread underfoot forty-two months. So the two witnesses' first job is to the church, to measure the ministry and to measure the laity. It says nothing about going to the world here until later on in the chapter. So the first primary concern is the church. And when we read Zechariah 5, our first and primary concern also then is the church because that is the first job these people are given when they are introduced in Zechariah 3 and 4 and identified in 4.14 along with Revelation 11.4 as the two end-time leaders. 
Well, this is the context to understand this in. So, verse 3, Then said he to me, This is the curse that goes forth over the face of the whole earth. So ultimately, it's going to begin with the church, and ultimately it will go over the whole earth. And of course, the church does cover, in that sense, the whole earth. Very thin, uh, very thinly, I should say. It covers it. So it goes over the whole church, over the entire earth, and ultimately, of course, uh, the whole earth is going to be judged by the law of God. So I think we can establish right here uh, that this is the case. Uh, verse 4, I will bring it forth. God is going to be the one who is behind this, says the Lord of hosts, and it shall enter into the house of the thief, and into the house of him that swears falsely by my name. Now there you have the tie-in with the Ten Commandments. Uh, the first four talk about uh, God's name and not swearing. Uh, the stealing basically has to do with the last six. So he summarizes them very quickly here, gives a point from each one of the two divisions of the Ten Commandments, and said, He will bring it forth, and this is the judgment that comes. How did Paul put it? Um, the curse of the law. The curse that comes as a result of disobeying the law of God. Very important. The words of God are what we will be judged by. All right, now where does it go? It shall enter to the house of the thief, and at the house of him that sweareth falsely by my name, and it shall remain in the midst of his house, and shall consume it with the timber thereof and the stones thereof. So this is an individual curse that comes upon each and every one of us as a result of whatever disobedience we might have, and perhaps it also comes on the churches, uh, the individual churches because it talks about the various houses here, mentions it three times. I don't know necessarily that it uh, is referring to both the individual and the church, but we'll see a little later on that it talks about women, so it is obviously in the context talking about the church or churches, whether it be worldwide or worldwide and her daughters. We'll get a little, see a little more light shed on that later on. All right, well, let's see now. Then, so this is continuing, this is just one, it's like sitting in a movie show, I guess, and you see one scene, and that scene ends, and then, like they'll change from the, let's say, the office to the street or whatever, you have a change of scene here, but it continues right in order, right in line. Then the angel that talked with me went forth and said to me, lift up now your eyes and see what this is that goes forth. So we have something else that enters the picture here kind of a take a gander at this. Lift up your eyes and see what is this that goes forth. And I said, what is it? Zechariah looked up and said, oh, I see it, but what is it? And he said, this is an ephah that goes forth. Now, what is an ephah? An ephah is a basket. Basically, let's picture a bushel basket here. Uh, it does two things. It holds the harvest. I mean, you, you harvest the grain, you put it in the baskets to take care of it. So it's the harvest, but it's also a means of measuring the harvest. An ephah was a measure of volume of how much grain. So we saw in chapter 2 that the church is to be measured. It is also um, picturing here the harvest that is in the basket. So basically speaking of the harvest at the end time 
of the age. Because the whole context here is the end of the age. He said, moreover, this is a resemblance through all the earth. So what we see here in this basket is a representative of the condition of the harvest around the world. This is just a basket which is a symbol of the rest of the harvest. And behold, there was lifted up a talent of lead, and this is a woman that sits in the middle of the harvest. So 120 pounds approximately of lead is introduced, which would pretty well cover the top of a, a basket, which is symbolic of the rest of the harvest. And there's a woman in the middle of this. So a church is introduced. A church in the middle of the harvest. And he said, this is wickedness. I want to tie in a couple of verses here. Proverbs 2, Proverbs 2, and verse 16. Proverbs 2, verse 16. Find it here. All right. To deliver you from the strange woman, even from the stranger which flatters with her words. Strangers entered the midst of the church, the midst of the harvest entered the woman and had flattery and wrong words. All right, let's, uh, let's pick up another one here uh, in the same context, chapter 5, while we're in the neighborhood. Chapter 5, verse 3. For the lips of a strange woman drop as in honeycomb, and her mouth is smooth as oil, but her end is bitter as wormwood, sharp as the two-edged sword. Her feet go down to death, her steps take hold on the grave. So people would come in with flatteries and with smooth sayings and grace, grace, that's all it is, and you don't have to obey, and Christianity should be easy, accept the Lord, and everything's done. But God says this will end in death. The wrong way. The strange woman is not to be listened to. So when we see a woman sitting in the ephah with this kind of words, God says it is wickedness. Not to be believed, not to be followed. I could go back to Jeremiah 3. I don't think I will right now, where it talks about Israel and then the wicked uh, daughter, uh, or deceptive daughter of Judah, who also disobey, because I think that before we're through, we're going to see that this not only refers to Worldwide Church of God, but to her daughters in Jeremiah 3 and in the first few chapters of Isaiah. At once, I, at once I thought it was just worldwide, but it may have a little wider application. Now, realize you can't take everything I'm saying here today uh, as gospel. We're talking about something that apparently has been happening and will continue to happen, and we can easily see uh, a woman like this that we fled from a few years back but we can't quite see into the future all the details of how these other verses are going to work out. Uh, we can get a general idea, perhaps, from these chapters of what is happening to the church and will happen to the church and what the leadership will do. And uh, I think that's exactly what this is talking about. At least I'll give it my best shot and give you some things to think about. Uh, this, isn't, uh, this is me trying to interpret what the thus saith the Lord is here. And I might put a wrong spin in some direction on it, but we shall see as time goes on. All right. 
what happens? He says, this is wickedness, verse 8, and he cast it into the midst of the ephah, and he cast the weight of lead upon the mouth thereof. So he's got this basket, symbolic of and resembling the church worldwide, and he casts this 120-pound chunk of lead on top of it. What does that do? Let's see. It, and it says he casts the weight of lead upon the mouth thereof. Now, in so doing, he covers this ugly woman, this wicked woman. I don't know whether it's just the mouth of the ephah he covers with it or whether it's her mouth. But really, if he covers the whole thing, he covers her mouth and her too. But he put the lid on it, in other words. He shuts it up. Now, you look at Worldwide today, and it is quickly dissolving. I just had reported to me recently that uh, they told any groups of 20 and under congregations to simply disband. They couldn't afford the hall rent to support them anymore, so just go away. Leave us. We don't want any more to do with you. In essence, those aren't their words, but if they say disband, that's sort of what it means, isn't it? In effect. And I guess it's this next week, or the week after, around the 3rd or 4th of April, Big Sandy is just being auctioned off to the highest bidder. And I think it would be a positive assessment that they would get 10 cents on the dollar out of that plant. Uh, I would think probably 1 to 3 to 5 would be more like it, uh, because they're auctioning off, for instance, all the faculty houses. I think there are about 25 of them in one lot. And how many people can buy 25 houses at once? So then you look at the field house and all the various buildings there, and who can use them unless they buy it as to use as a college or something? Uh, what do you want with that? So whoever might have wanted to buy it has waited until the end when the auction occurs, and you just sort of get what you can and run. That's the sad plight of the church today. And its voice is soon going to be shut up. It's like a lead weight was thrown over it or in its mouth. Then lifted up my eyes, and looked, and behold, there came out two women, and the wind was in their wings. Well, this is two women. Well, let's suppose this could be two churches. Uh, perhaps, and here I'm guessing to some degree, uh, maybe it's an educated guess, I hope, uh, that this might be the Catholics and the Protestants. Daniel 11.30 talks about uh, those who forsake the covenant having intelligence with the beast. So getting in collusion with, contact with, the beast, the Catholic Church. And of course, with the ecumenical movement, the Protestant daughters will go back to being basically Catholic sooner or later, if they are to survive. So what has taken worldwide away so far? Well, mainly Protestantism is where they have gone. They've gone to that woman, They've also been carried away partially by Catholic doctrine and may get in closer contact, as Daniel 11 seems to indicate. So the Protestants and the Catholics may be these two women who pick this harvest of God up that's in this ephah and carry it where? So they had wings like the wings of a stork, an unclean bird. Now, being an unclean bird isn't necessarily uh, a negative because... An eagle will carry the church to a place of safety. 
And Ezekiel 17 talks about the great eagle, I think, who was Herbert Armstrong, and another great eagle, uh, Joe Koch, who forsook the handshake and the covenant he made with Herbert Armstrong and died in Babylon. And it says that those who came from her, her fugitives, will then be scattered. And that fits very well with this situation here. So you have these two women who had wings. In other words, they had power. And they lifted up the ephah between the earth and the heaven. One commentary said perhaps that symbolizes that it's unacceptable to both God and man. Not acceptable on earth and certainly not acceptable in heaven. That might be an astute comment. Then said I to the angel that talked with me, Where do these take the harvest, the ephah, the basket, the church? And he said to me, To build a house in the land of Shinar and it shall be established and set there upon her own base. What does Shinar represent? Well, that's where the Tower of Babel was built, the confusion and religious uh, idolatry from God that God destroyed. So apparently, the bulk, the majority of the church, is going to be carried back to Babylon, back to confusion, back to this world system, in other words, the Protestant and Catholic system that basically rules of the nations of Israel today. We don't get into Hinduism and, and various Eastern religions here because those are not the ones that affect Israel. And the prophecies in the Bible are written overall to Israel and certainly to spiritual Israel and the Gentile nations only as they come into contact with Israel, as Herbert Armstrong taught us for years and years. Now, let's see, am I overlooking anything here that I wanted to bring in? Uh, A remnant, as we have seen in many, many scriptures, is going to be brought out and brought back together under the two witnesses. That's what the book of Haggai is all about and what Zechariah 3 and 4 are talking about. So that is certainly the context here. But what happens to most of the rest of the church? Apparently goes into the last three and a half years of the Great Tribulation. And there will have to be polished and burned and perhaps martyred. And eventually repent to the point of being saved and being in the first resurrection but later on in Zechariah it talks about 30% perhaps will repent during that period of time of, of those who go in so it's set on its own base here in Shinar that is it's not set on God's foundation it's not set on the Bible it's set on its own base and it has adopted paganism that is what has happened to worldwide church of God sad but true so we can come up with all kinds of wild ideas as to what Zechariah 5 is talking about, but if you examine the context of, what it, of where it is, because it's talking about the leadership and the, uh, the taking of a, to a place of safety and our release from Babylon and the whole context here, and as we go on past chapter 5, we find that that is still the same context. So that being the overall context here, this can't be talking about something from left field. It has to be discussing the whole subject which is at hand. So I think with that we can be fairly confident to say that it's talking about the church, it's talking about the leadership which will hold up the commandments of God, and the church will have to be judged against the words of God. And the church is found wanting, and therefore the church is carried off to that which it has adopted and accepted and is left in confusion and the Babylon of this world, well, the faithful remnant is going to be 
selected, stirred up by God, come together and be taken out of all this. Now that's my best shot at it. You've got some wonderful, brilliant ideas. Why, I'd be glad to hear them. I did propose this several years ago, and uh, one individual wrote me and said, this doesn't have anything to do with the church at all. It has to do with Israel, uh, and it has to do with the millennium. But the two witnesses come before them, and it very clearly identifies them here in chapter 4, verse 14, in concert with Revelation 11:4. So, remember the context. That's the key. That's something we learned years and years and years ago in the Bible, is if something is unclear, check the context. Because you can't jerk things out of context and expect to make sense of them. And to me, this makes sense in this particular context. Now, let's go on to chapter 6. I'll put that away quicker than I thought we would. Chapter 6, and verse 1, And I turned. You see, this is a continuation of the thought. Really probably shouldn't even be a chapter break here. So what he has just seen continues. A little different picture. So he turned and lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, there came four chariots out from between two mountains, and the mountains were mountains of brass. This has given me quite a bit of difficulty trying to figure out really what all this is talking about, but here again I think we can look at the context and see that the time frame is the same. The subject hasn't really changed, even though the scene has changed. Well, what do the chariots represent? We know from Revelation 6, Matthew 24, and various other places in the Bible that horses generally represent trouble. That is, war, famine, pestilence, and so on, as it's laid out there very clearly in Revelation 6, when the, the four horsemen of the apocalypse come, come riding. And then the uh, in Matthew 24, it talks about them, and then gets on into the martyrdom of saints and so on so uh, very clearly horses represent that and they were not to keep horses and David did and sinned against God because that meant that he was going to protect himself with armaments and men uh, whereas God said I will protect you so horses represent war I think that's clear to us and has been for a long time uh, what do chariots then represent because these chariots are pulled by horses uh, perhaps Double the emphasis. I don't know. Not just horses, but chariots behind those horses. Um, I would think that the picture basically is still the same. It means trouble. Trouble for somebody. The mountains of brass, or as some translated bronze, brass or bronze, being very strong, and mountains representing either governments or strong individuals, I think it was Jameson Fawcett Brown suggested that this might be talking about the two witnesses here uh, whom God gives, um, as Ezekiel puts it, foreheads of flint, uh, strength from God to do a job against the world. And I don't think we have realized the extent of this. And I'm going to get to it, God willing, more when we get to Malachi and show that this is a world stage, uh, as Revelation 11 shows, uh, plagues, wherever they wish uh, blood I mean water turning to blood no rain all kinds of things are going to happen between the world and the church just like they did between Moses and Aaron and Egypt and God says this is going to make Egypt pale into insignificance there in Jeremiah 23 so we're talking about a world stage here and God is going to have to strengthen 
I don't know for sure that this is talking about uh, the two witnesses as the two mountains, uh, but it very well could be because when those plagues and those difficulties begin to happen as laid out in Revelation 11.4, who does the work? It says that they turn water into blood and so on uh, at their will and wherever they wish. But go back and read about what happened in Exodus. There God told Moses and Aaron what to say next, what was coming next. But it was the death angel who actually delivered it, or it was these other angels who blocked the plagues. So it was by the power of God that the troubles came, not from Moses and Aaron per se. And it might be that it is at the behest of two men whom God makes strong, like brass, but it is done by some angels from heaven, carried out by them. Let's go on down a little bit and see if that makes a certain amount of sense here. In the first chariot were red horses, in the second chariot black horses, and in the third chariot white horses, and in the fourth chariot grizzled and bay or strong, the margin says, horses. Then I answered and said to the angel who talked with me, What are these, my lord? What is the significance? I mean, he could see they were chariots and horses, and he knew what color they were, but he didn't know what it meant. The angel answered and said to me, These are the four spirits, or four winds of the heavens, which go forth from standing before the Lord of all the earth. So they've been at God's throne. It's not talking about men here, but these are beings that have been before God's throne. Either righteous angels come forth to bring the trouble and destruction uh, that will be mentioned, or perhaps God uses evil angels. I don't know. Uh, in, in, in any case, it is someone who has been before the throne of God. The black horses which are therein go forth into the north country, the white go forth after them, and the grizzled go forth toward the south. And the bay went forth and sought to go that they might walk to and fro through the earth, or all over the earth, in other words. And he said, Get you hence, walk to and fro through the earth, so they walk to and fro through the earth. So God sent them from his presence at his throne and let them walk through the earth. Now these could be evil angels because uh, God does talk about how Satan went and walked to and fro through the earth. Or, well, that's what Satan said he had been doing when uh, God addressed him there in Job 1. But that I do not know, and I suppose for our purposes here it really doesn't matter whether it's righteous angels or evil angels. I don't want to ascribe to those who are righteous evil, nor ascribe evil to those who are righteous, so let's just leave that question up in the air or in abeyance for the moment, or for the time being, until maybe it becomes a little clearer at some point in time. All right, then cried he upon me, verse 8, and spoke to me, saying, Behold, these that go toward the north country have quieted my spirit in the north country. Most of the translations put this, they have appeased or settled my wrath in the north country. Well, what is in the north country? I guess that's a fair question to ask here. Um, the ten tribes of Israel were in the north. Uh, that's where their inheritance was when they first went into Palestine. The Assyrian is to the north, and destruction is coming upon our peoples from the north. So God is upset, apparently, with Israel, that is, I think, worldwide church of God, uh, which is represented by the ten tribes in the north. 
and possibly by Assyria. And we could tie in several scriptures here where he tells us, as I quoted before in Micah 5, tells the daughter of Zion to rise and thresh. Does the same thing there in Isaiah 41. And, uh, well, let me read a couple of those. Uh, Isaiah 31, 8 through 9 as well. We've gone to the others before. Isaiah 31. And what verse did I want here? Verse 22, I think it was. Absolutely not. Because it doesn't have that many. I miswrote that. 31... Look at 31, 8 through 9. Okay. Then shall the Assyrian fall with a sword, not of a mighty man, and the sword, not of a mean man, shall devour him. But he shall flee from the sword, and his young men shall be discomfited, and he shall pass over to his stronghold for fear, and his princes shall be afraid of the ensign, says the Lord, whose fire is in Zion and his furnace in Jerusalem. The rebel bell was made an ensign to the nations, or a standard or a signet to the nations there in the last verse of the book of Haggai. So the Assyrian is going to be afraid of the men of God, of the church of God, of the daughter of Zion, because she is to rise and thresh. And if they come against her, then fire will proceed from the leaders' mouths and devour them. You see why the world, the whole world, is going to begin to hate God's church and hate his witnesses? Because they're bringing the law of God as a witness against this world. And they will be hated and for three and a half years, the world is going to do its very best to destroy them. And the Assyrian represents the beast power and the false prophet who will cower before them. Now, the whole world is going to bow down before the beast and give them glory and honor as the merchants who save us after, or save the world in their eyes, after the crash in Israel, when we are no longer there and are destroyed as a nation and as a people. So they can take physical Israel into captivity. And the church, the bulk of the remnant of the church, will have to flee to safety. And Satan will turn against those that are left behind. There, as it says in the last verses of chapter 12 of Revelation. But the witnesses will go on out to the world and against the world. And the world can do nothing about them. They can raise plagues when they wish. They can turn their water into blood. And I think that they will probably go to all locations on the earth. And this will be a personal testimony, but it will be followed by all the TV cameras that the world can muster, because it will be the news of the day. And when it comes to the last three and a half days, and they're killed in the streets of Jerusalem, the whole world is going to party as a result. We finally got rid of our only nemesis, they think. But then Christ himself comes. <laughs> and they've seen plagues before. The boss comes then. Everything else will be child play prior to that. But he's coming on a horse with a sword. And his garment dipped in blood. And many, many more are going to be killed and were killed by the work of the witness against the world. But they will be a plague, a thorn in the side of this world as they bring this law of God and the curse against the world. First to the church, secondly to the world. That's the way their job is laid out here in Zechariah 3 and 4. First to the church, first measure the church, measure the altar, measure the ministry, measure the laity, see how big it is, 
take it to a place of safety under the aegis of Christ. Christ's doing all this. The witnesses are not doing it. Uh, let's understand that. This is the work of God being done through men as it has always been done. Then their attention turns to the world and God's attention turns to the world. Now where was I here in, Je in Zechariah 6? <clears throat> Apparently this pitched battle between the world and the leaders of God's church is going to begin to take place here and I think that that's probably what this is talking about. Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown may have been correct that the mountains do represent the leadership because that has been the context and yet they couldn't do it on their own even though God makes them strong as brass their foreheads as flint it still takes the angels from God to come and cause these things to happen and to avenge God's feelings his spirit in the north country uh, we will see before we get done here how much destruction comes on the church uh, maybe I should go back there now and let's, let's look at that a little bit First of all, let's go to Jeremiah 3. Jeremiah 3. I have postulated in the past that I thought Israel represented Worldwide Church of God, which is basically concluded in unbelief now uh, as a church and has had a lid of lead thrown on top of it, apparently. Maybe it isn't completely shut yet, but it's very close to it. But that Judah represents those who have split off. And that is the way Jeremiah 3 is laid out. He talks about uh, the church having many lovers here in chapter 3, verse 1. Uh, and no latter rain. We'll find that we're to pray for latter, a latter rain a little later on the book of Zechariah. Let's not go there now. But they re we refuse to be ashamed in the verse 3 of chapter 3, Jeremiah. Uh, verse 6, The Lord said also to me in the days of Josiah the king, Have you seen that which backsliding Israel has done? She's played the harlot everywhere. Uh, and I said, verse 7, After she had done all these things, Turn you to me, but she returned not. And her treacherous sister Judah saw it. So those who split off saw what was happening to worldwide, saw what happened when she went into all kinds of whoredoms. And I saw when for all the causes whereby backsliding Israel committed adultery, I had put her away and given her a bill of divorce. That the mountains do represent the leadership because that has been the context and yet they couldn't do it on their own even though God makes them strong as brass their foreheads as flint it still takes the angels from God to come and cause these things to happen and to avenge God's feelings, his spirit in the north country uh, we will see before we get done here how much destruction comes on the church uh, maybe I should go back there now and let's, let's look at that a little bit. First of all, let's go to Jeremiah 3. Jeremiah 3. I have postulated in the past that I thought Israel represented Worldwide Church of God, which is basically concluded in unbelief now uh, as a church and has had a lid of lead thrown on top of it, apparently. Maybe it isn't completely shut yet, but it's very close to it but that Judah represents those who have split off. And that is the way Jeremiah 3 is laid out. 
he talks about uh, the church having many lovers here in chapter 3, verse 1. Uh, and no latter rain. We'll find that we're to pray for latter, a latter rain a little later on in the book of Zechariah. Let's not go there now. But they re- we refuse to be ashamed in the verse 3 of chapter 3, Jeremiah. Uh, verse 6, The Lord said also to me in the days of Josiah the king, Have you seen that which backsliding Israel has done? She's played the harlot everywhere. Uh, and I said, verse 7, After she had done all these things, Tell you to me that she returned not, and her treacherous sister Judah saw it. So those who split off saw what was happening the worldwide, saw what happened when she went into all kinds of whoredoms. And I saw when for all the causes whereby backsliding Israel committed adultery, I had put her away and given her a bill of divorce. If we apply this to the church, not just to ancient Israel, basically God at this point has divorced Israel, uh, worldwide church of God. Remember what Mr. Armstrong used to say when the church would start getting off track? Because we're not anymore, he would say. Or we not anymore. And be very adamant about it. And I think that those words were prophetic. Because it isn't God's church anymore. It has been set on its base in Babylon. Yet her treacherous sister Judah feared not, but went and played the harlot also. So those churches would split off from her. Does the separate tribe apparently will also play the harlot? God is not happy with them either. We'll see that in the context of Isaiah a little later on to put with this. It came to pass through the lightness of her whoredom, that is, her casual approach, not really loving her husband-to-be, not being zealous, being Laodicean, flat, lackadaisical, that she defiled the land and committed adultery with stones and with socks. Hasn't really come out of the world. Maybe not as long into the same paganism the worldwide is gone, but it's slowly drifting that direction, losing one truth at a time that we learned in the past. Yet for all this, her treacherous sister Judah has not turned to me with her whole heart, but feignedly, hypocritically, says the Lord. Oh yeah, the churches have split off, turned to God to some degree. And they were seeking righteousness when they left worldwide. But it wasn't with our whole heart. And God wants our whole heart. He doesn't want us partway there. So even though we might compare ourselves with Israel or worldwide and say we're okay, God says we're naked and blind. And it is a feigned turn. Our whole hearts are not there. At the church services, we might hear a sermon about God, but then we talk about diapers and babies and cars and jobs and health and all these things. Apart from that which is truly important. Not that we can't inquire of each other's health. I don't mean that we should never say anything like that. But it's just one small application where it appears that our minds are on other things rather than truly being on the things of God, the things that we should be truly excited about, and want to discuss. Instead, we discuss inane, usual, physical things. And I think you will find that pretty much through the Church of God. The Lord said to me, the backsliding Israel has justified herself more than treacherous Judah. She had more things to justify Christmas, Easter, Sunday.
apply this to the church, not just to ancient Israel. Basically, God at this point has divorced Israel, uh, worldwide church of God. Remember what Mr. Armstrong used to say when the church would start getting off track? Look at who God's church anymore! He would say. Look at who God's college anymore! And be very adamant about it. And I think that those words were prophetic because it isn't God's church anymore. It has been set on its base in Babylon. Yet her treacherous sister Judah feared not, but went and played the harlot also. So those churches which split off from her, the, the separate tribe, apparently will also play the harlot. God is not happy with them either. We'll see that in the context of Isaiah a little later on to put with this. It came to pass through the lightness of her whoredom, that is, her casual approach, not really loving her husband-to-be, not being zealous, being Laodicean, slack, lackadaisical, that she defiled the land and committed adultery with stones and with stocks. Hasn't really come out of the world. Maybe not has gone into the same paganism the worldwide has gone, but it's slowly drifting that direction, losing one truth at a time that we learned in the past. Yet for our list, her treacherous sister Judah has not turned to me with her whole heart, but feignedly, hypocritically, says the Lord. Oh yeah, the churches that split off turned to God to some degree, and they were seeking righteousness when they left worldwide. But it wasn't with our whole heart. And God wants our whole heart. He doesn't want us partway there. So even though we might compare ourselves with Israel or worldwide and say we're okay, God says we're naked and blind. And it is a feigned turn. Our whole hearts are not there. At the church services, we might hear a sermon about God, but then we talk about diapers and babies and cars and jobs and health and all these things, apart from that which is truly important. Not that we can't inquire of each other's health. I don't mean that we should never say anything like that. But it's just one small application where it appears that our minds are on other things rather than truly being on the things of God, the things that we should be truly excited about and want to discuss. Instead, we discuss inane, usual, physical things. And I think you will find that pretty much through the Church of God. The Lord said to me, the backsliding Israel has justified herself more than treacherous Judah. She had more things to justify, Christmas, Easter, Sunday worship, and so on. But Judah has also justified herself as well. Go and proclaim these words toward the north. See? Return, you backsliding Israel, says the Lord, and I will not cause my anger to fall upon you, for I am merciful, and I will not keep anger forever. Only acknowledge your iniquity, that you transgressed and have scattered your ways to the strangers under every green tree and have not obeyed my voice. But do you think they're going to turn? No way, not under these present conditions. Turn, O backsliding children, for I am married to you, and I will take you one of a city and two of a family, and I will bring you to Zion, and I will give you pastors according to my heart, which shall feed you with knowledge and understanding. Well, that has not yet happened. Verse 18, In those days the house of Judah shall walk with the house of Israel, and they shall come together out of the land of the north to the land that I have given for an inheritance to your fathers. So those horses and chariots which go to the north are going to wreak devastation on both Israel and Judah and receive the chastening of the Lord very heavily. 
and then they will return one and two and three at a time and a remnant will be gathered together to follow God this will be repeated in the millennium because physical Israel and Judah will also go through that tribulation and then return one and two and three at a time and turn to God and to Christ who will then be on earth and be Mount Zion he says in chapter 4 verse 5 declare you in Judah and publish in Jerusalem and say blow the trumpet in the land much like Joel says cry gather together and say assemble yourselves and let us go to the defense cities set up the standard toward Zion retire stay not for I will bring, bring evil from the north and a great destruction so God is going to cause destruction on Israel ultimately on Judah and certainly then he is going to cause destruction on the Assyrian and a in an international uh, level at the return of Christ so this pattern is going to be seen in the church and then repeated in the world alright now let's go back to for the moment now to Zechariah I thought I was ahead of schedule now time is fleeting uh, Zechariah 6 <coughs> chariots and horses are going to appease or quell God's anger in the north perhaps through the chastening of his people and the word of the Lord came to me saying take of them of the captivity even of Heldai of Tobijah and of Jedaiah which are come from Babylon so as the church is released from the 70 years of difficulty uh, these are people who have been in the church and come you the same day and go into the house of Josiah the son of Zephaniah so he's talking about four people here we'll see their names mentioned uh, down a little later then take silver and gold and make crowns and set, the, set them upon the head of Joshua the son of Joseph the high priest so here again we're addressing the leadership introduced in the book of Haggai and again talked about in Zechariah 3 and 4 so the context hasn't changed we're still talking about the church here and speak to him saying thus speaks the Lord of hosts saying behold the man whose name is the branch and he shall grow up out of his place, and he shall build the temple of the Lord. And my King James margin says, and he shall branch up from under him. This is an interesting imagery here. Um, I want to go back and compare what God said in Zechariah 3 with what he's saying here in Zechariah 6. Because he introduces Joshua here in chapter 3 first. Now, if you go back in the book of Haggai and even back into Ezra, you'll see that he talks first of Zerubbabel and then Joshua in each and every case and gives the various jobs that they did. But when he introduces the two here in Zechariah 3, he introduces Joshua first, Zerubbabel second. Now, that is seemingly inconsistent that he would call them Zerubbabel and Joshua throughout and then introduce one ahead of the other. But notice here in chapter 3, uh, first of all, that Joshua was filthy. So to be of any use, Joshua first had to be cleansed. Now perhaps the rubber bell didn't need this uh, washing and cleansing in the same way that Joshua did. Joshua is represented here as the high priest. Now he was personally filthy, and as a representative of all the people, he represented a filthy people as well who needed cleansed. 
That's what the high priest was all about. He had to wash himself first, then go into the Holy of Holies and offer for the rest of the people. So one reason, obviously, he has to be introduced first is he needs to go through a cleansing process. Uh, but that's not all, it appears. Uh, he's instructed in verse 7 to walk in God's ways and keep his charge. If so, he would be given places to walk among these that stand by. That was the angels of God. And the instruction then is, Here, O Joshua the high priest, you and your fellows that sit before you, for they are men of sign and wonder, for behold, I will bring forth my servant the branch. It does appear that Joshua will be introduced in a public, obvious way before Zerubbabel is. There are men attached to him somehow who do signs and wonders. And perhaps this is the beginning of how this leadership begins to be recognized. I don't know. Uh, but before Joshua is laid a stone with seven eyes, we went into that and showed that it's talking about the, the spirits of the angels of the churches. So all seven churches of the rock Christ are laid before Joshua initially. And then he said, I will bring forth my servant, the branch, which is speaking here of Zerubbabel, as we shall see a little later on. So it does look like uh, Joshua is introduced first. Well, he is introduced first here, but what I'm saying is it looks like he is introduced in such a way that men with him begin to produce some signs and wonders, and God will then reveal his servant, the branch. If we go back to, to Zechariah 6, we see the same thing, that Joshua is addressed first. After having been cleansed, he's given crowns, and he is then addressed. He's told some things. And speak to him, verse 12, saying, Thus speaks the Lord of hosts. So the angel who's standing here is delivering the words of Christ to Joshua, saying to Joshua, Behold the man whose name is the branch. So this is not speaking here of Christ the branch. Of course, the Zerubbabel is a type of Christ. But So this, this is speaking, this is the Lord telling the angel to speak to this man who represents Christ as the branch. He shall branch up from under him. Now, if Joshua was introduced first, some signs and wonders begin to occur. Uh, it appears that Zerubbabel does not appear on the scene quite at that moment. But... He's telling Joshua that he will branch up from under himself or from under you. Uh, they're divided in the commentaries on what that is supposed to be translated as. But he reiterates here in verse 13 what he's already told Zerubbabel in verse 4, in chapter 4, I mean. Even he shall build the temple of the Lord, and he shall bear the glory, and shall sit and rule upon his throne. So let's go back for a moment here to Zechariah 4 and verse 9. Here he says, the hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this house. So Zerubbabel started out by laying the foundation of a spiritual house or church. But why is the language this way? His hands shall also finish it. Is there an interim period here where, that, where um, Zerubbabel uh, is being dealt with or uh, is out to lunch or whatever? And you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. Now, it may be that God introduces Joshua first and has some of these signs and wonders begin to occur with he and, his, and the men that are with him or attached to him in some form or fashion. And Zerubbabel may have a difficulty that God is dealing with. 
Now let's hearken back for a moment to Moses. Moses was a meek and humble man. And yet, he was also timid and fearful when given this job. Now you imagine the things we've talked about here and laying these on the head of a man saying, you're the leader and you're going to go do all these things. <laughs> what if it were you? And you were told, go out and uh, rise and thresh the Assyrian, uh, call plagues down, uh, turn water into blood, deliver my people. You and I might kind of shrink back from that, mightn't we? And taking that leap. And I think that that may be the case with Zerubbabel here, just the way both these chapters are worded and the sequence in which God does it. Let's add another leap to that, and that is what he tells Zerubbabel here in chapter 4 and verse 6. Then he answered and spoke to me, saying, This is the word of the Lord unto Zerubbabel, saying, Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Who are you, O Zerubbabel? God is going to have to cause the mountains to be leveled in front of him. So it may be that Zerubbabel has a bit of a timid, um, fearful approach to this and is scared to take whatever steps come in his way that need to be done in order to accomplish these things. So God gives him encouragement here saying, don't worry, you don't have the power but it will be by my spirit, by my power, by my strength, that these things are done. Remember how Moses reacted. Though he was a meek and humble man, and timidity and fear are not a part of meekness and humility, they are certainly twin sisters. They often dwell in the same house. And Moses, being meek and humble, showed some fear and timidity when showed the size of the job before him. And God got angry with Moses. Remember, Zerubbabel is a type of Moses here. Doing a similar job to that which Moses did. So let's have some compassion and pity on whoever this man may turn out to be who has to take the lead. Because he may really have to fight for the strength and the courage to do the job. The faith that is going to be required. And still to do it in meekness and humility because the witnesses, says, it says in Zechariah and Revelation 11, come in sackcloth, that is, in humility. Whether they'll actually wear sackcloth of hair, I do not know, but certainly the symbolism is there of humility. So great deeds have to be done, but they have to be done in great humility at the same time. And this is a very difficult thing, I'm sure, for him to wrestle with, just as it was with Moses. Moses finally raised God's ire to the point he said, you're going to do it, but I'm going to send Aaron to speak for you. At least for a while, Aaron did. Became the spokesman. This might happen again. At the end of that particular story, Moses sort of retired and disappeared for a while. That is, he went up the mountain and died, and Joshua took them on into the land. That was a different Joshua, but the type may still be there. See, Moses isn't gone from the scene forever now. Moses is going to be resurrected and come right back on the scene in the promised land at the first resurrection. Kind of an interesting mix to put all of these together. So, whoever Zerubbabel is, he may need an awful lot of our prayers that he is able to do what God told 
Zerubbabel and Joshua to do in Haggai and in Isaiah 41, that is, fear not, be of good courage, and work. And he tells the people, the remnant whom he stirs up, to fear not, to be of good courage, and to work. Because we are about to enter some very, very fearful times. And some will be martyred. Some will die, Daniel 11 says, and Matthew 24 echoes. But these things will occur. The martyrdom of the saints. And that's what this is discussing, the very end of this age and the leadership of the church. Now let's add another leap to this, back to Zechariah 6 and verse 13. Even he, speaking of the branch, and it's speaking of Zerubbabel, he shall build the temple of the Lord, because it tells us back in Zechariah 4 that Zechariah, uh, that Zerubbabel is going to lay the house and his hand will finish it, verse 9. And it says it in the book of Haggai all the way through that Zerubbabel and Joshua are in the middle of this endeavor as the leaders. So when it's talking about the branch building the temple of the Lord, it's talking about Zerubbabel doing it at the behest of Christ, who is ultimately the branch, obviously, and will rebuild all Israel in the millennium. But it's done first in the church by human men at the power of God. Even he shall build the temple of the Lord, and he shall bear the glory, and shall sit and rule upon his throne, and shall be a priest upon his throne, and the council of peace shall be between them both. They will reach peace between the two, speaking of Joshua and Zerubbabel here. Now let's go back to uh, Isaiah 52. Here it describes the end-time message as we went through in a recent sermon. Verse 7 of Isaiah 52. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him, one, that brings good tidings, that publishes peace, that brings good tidings of good, that publishes salvation, that says to Zion, Thy God reigns. <laughs> All right. Him, one who has this particular message in specific. But it changes to plural in verse 8. Thy watch men shall lift up the voice with the voice together shall they sing. For they shall see eye to eye when the Lord shall bring again Zion. When God turns us around. When God begins to do miracles. When this thing begins to happen. When the church begins to depart and leave the unclean thing as it shows in verse 7. And God being the rear guard behind in verse 12. And his servant dealing prudently. Then it talks about Christ and his sacrifice. And the type is there with Zerubbabel as well. Who has believed our report? Chapter 53, verse 1. And to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? The branch, the arm of God. Where is it revealed? Then in chapter 54, it talks about the barren daughter, the barren wife beginning to sing and break forth, and I don't have time to go through all that at the moment. I wanted to establish here this other leaf, and that is that there apparently is a rift or a disagreement or an unbelief to some degree with the two. And they don't begin to truly sing together and see completely eye to eye until the turnaround begins to come. Now that may tie in very well with this thing about the timidity or the fear uh, that goes along with the humility and meekness of the man whom God chooses to lead. He may need encouragement and prayer and supplication and fasting uh, as we all need it in order to cross the bridges that are going to lie across in front of us in the short time ahead. 
It's hard to believe all this. It's hard to understand how it's all going to happen and how suddenly this chastening and this scattering and these difficult times are going to turn around and God is going to begin to rebuild. And perhaps he starts it through Joshua and then it continues. Whoever laid the finish, laid the foundation, perhaps uh, is a little timid in taking the lead. God deals with him. In the meantime, uh, signs and wonders are done through Joshua. And then he come, He who laid the foundation comes back strongly on the scene and finishes the job. I don't know that I have this all laid out uh, correctly, but there seems to be this somewhat of a byplay here in the way the context of all these and the way they are worded is laid out, uh, especially when combined with Isaiah 52, verse 8. He says in Haggai 2, verse 9, In this place will I bring peace, the latter temple. And he says here that any rifts between these two leaders will be resolved and they will have a covenant of peace between them. How far does this scattering go, brethren, till not one stone is left upon another? Even those who will be the two leaders, it appears, will have some rift. This is going to be done only by the power of Almighty God. Because not even two men, apparently, can come to total harmony and peace until God brings them there. That's just how bad we as humans are. And how deeply we have to repent and depend upon Jesus Christ, our Lord and Master and soon coming King and Ruler and Husband. So that no two, even the two God uses to lead, apparently, can get along completely until all this begins to come to pass and they'll get absolutely then on the same page and sing together eye to eye as Isaiah 52 8 indicates now how much time do I have I want to go back a little bit on the branch and to do that uh, we need to get to Isaiah let's go back to the first part of Isaiah Isaiah is addressed to Judah and Jerusalem Jeremiah was talking there about Israel and Judah in chapter 3 and 4 that we talked about. But Isaiah is talking to Judah. He's talking about, uh, I think, the split-offs from world life in, in terms of the church context. In terms of all Israel, he's talking about Judah here as well, Benjamin, Judah, and Levi, who have not been as bad, perhaps, as the rest of Israel. But let's notice it in verse 5 of chapter 1. Why should you be stricken anymore? We were stricken in worldwide. Then we separated out from it. And he says, why should you be stricken anymore? You will revolt more and more. The whole head is sick and the whole heart faint. From the sole of the foot to the head, there is no soundness but wounds and bruises and putrefying sores. Does that pretty well describe the church today? Oh, I guess. Uh, the daughter of Zion, verse 8, is left as a cottage in a vineyard, as a lodge in a garden of cucumbers, as a besieged city. So even the one daughter that will turn out to be the one that God draws the remnant to is as a besieged city. Except the Lord of hosts had left to us a very small remnant. We should have been as Sodom and should have been like Gomorrah. 
Then he goes down and talks about the things that he hates. He hates our new moons and Sabbaths, our new moons and appointed feasts his soul hates. And then it goes on down to uh, verse 17 or 16. Watch you, make you clean, put away the evil of your doings before my eyes. Learn to do well, seek judgment, relieve the oppressed, judge the fatherless, plead for the widow. Um, be willing and obedient, and you shall eat the good of the land, verse 19. Um, he says we follow after rewards with rebellious princes and companions of thieves, in verse 23. And don't judge with mercy the fatherless or the cause of the widow. We're not taking care of each other. We're fighting among ourselves. And then he talks about, I will restore your judges, verse 26, as at the first, and your counselors as at the beginning. Zion shall be redeemed with judgment, and her converts, or my margin says, they that return of her with righteousness. So this is all the punishment, the chastening, the scattering you're going through is going to produce righteousness in some. Now let's establish the time element, chapter 2, verse 2. In the last days, not in the millennium he's talking here, but in the last days. And the law is going to come back, verse 3. Uh, he tells the world to enter into the rock, verse 10, not speaking to the church here, and hide in the dust. Revelation talks about them going into caves and saying, let the rocks fall on us, and so on. Same type language that he's using here. Verse 17, the loftiness of man shall be bowed down, and the haughtiness of men shall be made low, and the Lord alone shall be exalted in that day. Um... The church is going to get so bad in famine, chapter 3, verse 1, no, no bread, no water, uh, that eventually all these preachers who want to be <laughs> the leaders today are going to say, verse 7, last part, make me not a ruler of the people. I don't want to be a preacher. For Jerusalem is ruined and Judah is fallen because their tongue and their doings are against the Lord to provoke the eyes of his glory. Verse 12, is for my people, children are their oppressors, and women rule over them. O my people, they which lead you cause you to err and destroy the way of your paths. So the ministry is leading us astray. Echo Jeremiah 23 and Ezekiel 34 and Malachi 1. God is not happy with the ministry. That's why Joshua and Zerubbabel are told to measure the altar first. And then the people as well. All fits together here. Verse 15, What mean you that you beat my people to pieces and grind the faces of the poor? Moreover, the Lord says, Because the daughters of Zion are haughty, and it talks about the pride. It talks about them as women here, each trying to look prettier than the rest of the sisters, each trying to say, I'm the leader, I'm Philadelphia, or whatever. Each church tries to make itself look the prettiest of all so that everyone will come and join them. Now they will lead. There's no meekness here. We all have to read this and look at ourselves and say, who do we think we are? Whoever we are. Verse 25, your men shall fall by the sword and your mighty in the war and her gates shall lament and mourn and she being desolate shall sit upon the ground. Now, I've been leading up to this, chapter 4. And in that day, we're talking about in the last days, remember chapter 2, verse 2. In that day, seven women shall take hold of one man, saying, We will eat our own bread. Ironically, there are seven churches mentioned in Revelation 2 through 3. So all seven, however they're divided up into 400 organizations, but all seven attitudes or churches here take hold of one man. 
We will eat our own bread and our own apparel and let us be called by your name to take away our reproach. So the churches are going to be falling down around their ears and they're going to take hold of one. And that day shall the branch of the Lord be beautiful and glorious and the fruit of the earth shall be excellent and comely for them that are escaped of Israel. And it shall come to pass that he that is left in Zion and he that remains in Jerusalem shall be called holy, even every one that is written among the, those still living spiritually. When the Lord shall have washed away the filth of the daughters, daughters, see the churches, not just worldwide, but the daughters, and shall have purged the blood of Jerusalem from the midst thereof by the spirit of judgment and by the spirit of burning, and the Lord will create upon every dwelling place of Mount Zion and upon her assemblies a cloud and smoke by day and the shining of a flaming fire by night. That's tied in with uh, Zechariah 2, verses 1 through 4, where he says that Jerusalem shall be built back and he will be a wall of fire around her. And it's not talking about the world tomorrow because it is a nonsense city. And yet, when you get to Revelation 19 through 21, you find that Jerusalem is a fence city when Christ is living there, the walls being 144 cubits high and so on and so forth. So this is talking about a different time, talking about the context of the end-time church, and that's what all of Haggai and Zechariah uh, the first chapters of Zechariah, at least, are talking about. And a place of refuge, and as a covert from storm and from rain. Now, showing that this is still talking about the church, he gets into chapter 5, where he talks about his vineyard, the church being torn down, the heads being taken away, how many, many spiritual houses are being built, but we will not live in them. God is going to destroy them. Many great and fair will be torn down. Amos, I think it is, says the winter house and the summer house. Whatever church you go to is going to be torn down. So that is the context here. And he talks in verse 13 of chapter 6, But yet in it shall be a tenth, and it shall return. So a remnant, and that's what Haggai talks about all the way through, is a remnant who will return and with Zerubbabel and Joshua build the church back, the latter temple. So the branch here is designated as the one that all seven churches or the remnant thereof will come to and he is listed as the rubber bell in Zechariah 6 and in Ze and, uh, Zechariah 4 and equated with the branch being of course a type of Christ you can read more about that in Isaiah 11 Jeremiah uh, what is it 25 I think I've got that here in my notes somewhere but for sake of time I'll not go there Jeremiah 23 5 and Jeremiah 33:15. And if you read the whole chapter of Isaiah 11, uh, it talks about the gathering, and it talks about another gathering there. It talks of Christ. We've always looked upon Zechariah 11 as talking about Christ in the millennium, but Zerubbabel is a type of the branch Christ, and the blessings are going to return to the church first before the end of this age, and then they are going to come to all of Israel under the final righteous branch, Jesus Christ. No more types there. Christ will be on the earth, and those conditions will exist. But they are going to first exist, starting with the meshing of Joshua and Zerubbabel to sing together, and the whole church coming as a remnant and working in harmony and peace to build the kind of relationships that will later exist in the whole world when Christ lives here and moves with his bride. But the bride has to quit fighting and come to peace first. That has to occur. And will, leading up to and 
including the place of safety in the last three and a half years when she has taken into her place and protected by God throughout that three and a half years as Christ being a wall of fire around her during that period of time. Now let's go back to Zechariah 6 and see if we have any loose ends to tie up here because we're essentially out of time, although I got a little bit of a late start, so I won't worry for about a few minutes. Uh, Zechariah 6. Yeah, let's finish this up. <clears throat> so the branch will finish building the church. Of course, Christ, again, is the branch who is directing all this, but Zerubbabel is a type of him and the man to whom God will cause the remnant to attach themselves. Uh, let's see. In the verse 13, we've already covered, the council of peace shall be between them both, and the crown shall be to Helam and to Tobijah and to Jediah and to him, the son of Zephaniah, if you want a little side study, go into the meanings of those names and you might find a little more light shed on this. But there are four singled out here who also receive a certain honor uh, as well as that which is given to Zerubbabel and to Joshua in, the ter in terms of crowns. These also are given crowns. I wonder if they do not equate to the four carpenters of the end of chapter 1 because they are very instrumental in rebuilding the church, apparently, along with the other leaders. So four individuals are singled out here, and they will be a memorial, or for a memorial, in the temple of the Lord, given great honor, apparently, in the church. And they that are far off shall come and build in the temple of the Lord, and you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me unto you. When this all happens, then we will know that it is by the hand of God Perhaps it's a little hard for us to imagine. Perhaps it's a little hard for us to grasp what is about to happen to the church, especially when we're beat down and scattered as we are and being chastened so severely. But this scattering is going to continue, and it isn't finished even here in chapter 6 because Zechariah 11 talks about further scattering even further down the road even in this very book. So this that is about to happen is going to happen apparently even in the midst of the scattering before it is done. If Zechariah is written sequentially, and I think that it is, the time element, because we're talking about the second year of Darius here, and chapter 7 introduces the fourth year, two-year gap here somehow on what happens. Now, they that are far off shall come and build in the temple of the Lord. Let's compare that to... Haggai 1 and verse 14. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Josedach, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people, and they came and did work in the house of the Lord of hosts, their God. So this is chapter 6. The end of it is tied directly back to the book of Haggai. Haggai introduces it. Zerubbabel, I mean, excuse me, Zechariah, get my Z's mixed up, Zechariah adds a lot more detail, which is what we've seen today in chapters 5 and 6. And they that are far off from around the world, apparently, people who are still faithful to God, shall come and build in the temple of the Lord, and you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you, and this shall come to pass if you will diligently obey the voice of the Lord your God. He ends this section with a warning and with an encouragement. You see, God never bases his reputation and his faithfulness on the faithfulness of men. 
And he can make that come to pass, which he says. He swears by his name. He swears by the heavens which he has created that such and such will happen. But when it comes to men, there always has to be a contingency. When it comes to men, there always has to be a caveat thrown in there. If men respond to me, if you will do. So Joshua was unclean. He represented an unclean people that had to be chastened and scattered. So both he and those who follow in the church of God have to repent. All seven take hold of one man, Zerubbabel, or one government at the end. Ironically, there are seven churches mentioned in Revelation 2 and 3. And what is the instruction? Bottom line. Bottom line, last line, last instruction to all seven, overcome. No matter what your problems laid out in the first part of the instruction to each church, the bottom line is overcome, and these things will be. Overcome and enter into the kingdom of God. So the instruction to the seven churches is qualified even in Revelation upon us being faithful to God. And the same thing is said right here, speaking in the same context of the very end time. These things will come to pass if you will diligently obey the voice of the Lord your God. There is the challenge before us. Passover is coming. The days of unleavened bread are coming. This fits in very well in a timely fashion with the way we need to be thinking right now to humble ourselves and become contrite before God and turn to him not feignedly but with our whole heart, mind, body, and soul that this becomes the focus in our lives that we obey God because that flying roll of his Ten Commandments is going to be held up to you and to me and ultimately to the whole world. And that is what we will be judged by. And God says that his judgment on whether or not these things will come to pass is based upon whether we will obey. Now, he makes it very clear that he is going to cause this to happen. Romans 11, he says that they are concluded in unbelief, all Israel, but that he will say that God is going to do this. Therefore, it means that he is going to make sure that a remnant is faithful whatever he has to put that remnant through. He's staking his reputation on his capacity to do this to and for the church. The question is upon you and me as individuals. Are we going to be part of it? Will we diligently obey? Because God is going to make it to happen. All Israel shall be saved, he says. He doesn't qualify that. He has the capacity, the providence, the power, the sovereignty to do this. But some will weep and gnash their teeth. I don't want to be one of them. You don't want to be one of them. So let us set our hands to diligent obedience so that we can be a part of the peace and unity and harmony that God is going to bring in his church between both the leaders and the membership so that we can be a type of the millennium that will come to all Israel in peace 
will be there. The wolf and the lamb can lie down together on a physical, literal basis, whereas right now we as brothers in the church have to come to the place we can lie down together in peace and not fight and tear and compare one another among ourselves, which is not wise. We have a real challenge here. And brethren, frankly, we're not up to it. We as human beings are not up to it. But if we turn to God with our whole heart, he will give us the power, the strength, and his spirit. Because he tells the rubber bell specifically, this isn't going to be done by you. This will be done by my spirit. End of transmission.